Hi, Janina. Hi, Emma. And we have an extra person today. Hi, Anna. Hi, Hello. Emma. Hello, Emma. Hello, Janina. I'm so happy to be here. We're so excited that you're here. Uh, I'm more excited. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, everybody knows me and Janina already, but Anna is assistant professor of music with a PhD in practice-led research on the classical piano and a world mm. expert in Brahms, <laughs> <laughs> who causes stirs wherever she goes and to talk yeah. about and perform Brahms. I do. I make a lot of people very angry most of the time, so... <laughs> That's and it, that's my unofficial job is <laughs> making people angry. You're like the punk rock of Brahms. Well, I wouldn't go that far. No, I. Um, but I have on many occasions been standing on stage with a room full of angry men shouting at me. So <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't. Maybe that's punk. I'm not sure. That's I, quite I'm not, punk. I'm not up on the definition, the current definition of punk. But no. And specifically what annoy what you do that annoys people is you talk about the way that Brahms is performed and there were changes in the way that he's performed. So you specifically research changes to what music sounds like. Yeah, the basic premise is that music not very long ago, um, just a few generations, was played in completely yeah, completely different ways than we play it now. Very well loved, well known pieces of classical music for the piano. And so I do lots of research into what those differences were. Um, but the thing that makes people the most angry is that I then embody those differences <laughs> and <laughs> copy them exactly as I hear them from some of the earliest recordings that we have of Brahms and his students playing, for example. Um, and yeah, I make uh, exact copies of their recordings and then I sort of that by doing that, I learn their kind of language, their stylistic language. Um, and then once I know that language, I can pretty much apply it in any of his pieces, even if, yeah, we don't have a original recording. Um, and that tends to make people the angry, <laughs> which is why it's the most fun. <laughs> so you're the perfect person to have on to answer our question for this week. So I know nothing about music. Um, Janina is a theatre and a music person uh, and you're a music genius so <laughs> we're the three perfect people to answer a question from Daniel Potter which is how has music changed over time oh goodness <laughs> the answer question, is a lot really. <laughs> yeah. it is quite a big question he did he did then say specifically what did ancient Roman music sound like but we've decided to go for sort of somewhere in the middle of those two questions mm. and Kind of talk about essentially what what can we know about how music has changed over time mm. so from ancient music to medieval music to more modern music and then even as Anna says stuff that is recorded it still has changed over even short periods of time yeah yeah so the short answer is a, a fuck ton it is a fuck ton <laughs> yeah. That's the that's the technical term, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it's, that's the answer for any question we get, which is anything to do with how much of anything. Yeah. The answer yeah. is going to be a lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, the simple answer is that it's changed as much as people have changed. Um, so, of course, there are things that remain constant in that 
there are humans involved and that humans experience certain emotions and have always done. But then you start to get into really tricky territory because the ways people express things change so much and the things that they think are worth putting into music change and audiences change and the function of music changes and and at least for the ancients I don't know expert by any means but my understanding <laughs> is that it's very ritualistic very ceremonial had a clear purpose yeah and the idea of sort of music for its own sake is a very relatively new concept yeah so I'm guess the I mean the uh, aside from a fuck ton <laughs> um <laughs> Well, we'll start at the beginning and we'll yeah, see how Yeah, let's we do get that. On. Let's do that. So, the oldest instruments in the world are flutes. And when we were talking <laughs> about this before we started recording, Anna threw some extremely hardcore shade on flautists. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, the, the old the old orchestra joke is that the most value that there are in flutes is in their metal that you can melt them down and make other more useful things. <laughs> Um, and I mean, I'm a bit of a, a rogue in this sense because I share most musicians' feelings about flutists in general, or I guess you say flautists. Yeah. But I actually have even worse opinions about many other instruments. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, flute players for me, they're just one of many, but yeah, that's, a, that's, that's another, on. that's another episode. Yeah, we'll get you back on for another episode. Which are the worst instruments ranked? <laughs> I feel like this is an opportune time to mention that I play the flute. Um... <laughs> See, I am afraid that I'm going to have to be in with the uh, anti-flautist group on the basis that the last experience that I had with music was in 1994 when I went on a music camp. For reasons that I'm not really sure why I went to it, because I've never shown any... <laughs> talent or interest in music is this is this a literal one time at band camp story it is a literal one time band camp story <laughs> except it's not a fun one because a girl hit me on the head with a fleet oh god <laughs> and then i cried for like a day and threatened to throw myself out of a third floor window she didn't stop <laughs> and then i've literally never done any music since <laughs> i will never forgive the flautists so <laughs> No, as well you shouldn't. That That's um, unforgivable. But they do have a sort of claim to be the oldest, which is terrible. Uh, but all, all of the like very old, like Neolithic and Paleolithic instruments that we have are flutes, of which the oldest one was found in Slovenia and is made from a bear femur and is about 41 to 43,000 years old. Whoa. There's a good lot of debate about whether it's a human thing or whether Neanderthals made it or whether, and this is my personal favourite, just some wolves did it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Accidental accidental instrument. (laughs) Yeah, like there's one guy who, and it's like, it's a flute. You look at it and it's a bone and they have, like it's got, fairly uniform holes at uniform spaces yeah. <laughs> um, it's called the Divya, Divya Baba flute and you and it's like been hollowed out and and there's this one guy's like no wolves did it <laughs> Just, and you can't really argue with it because you keep, you keep going yeah but look how like precise it is and they're like no wolves <laughs> <laughs> that's a beautiful conspiracy theory I'm a big fan 
Yeah, yeah. but he, he like got it. quite a lot of coverage, and so loads of people have had to like put loads of time into telling him that it's not wolves. <laughs> <laughs> There's all these articles that are like, well, if you look here, then you can see like the chances of it being have them putting through like one tooth and not going through the other side <laughs> four times in a row. <laughs> are quite Maybe that was his goal all the time. He just wanted to waste a lot of <laughs> academic time. Maybe he also really hates floor tests. <laughs> yeah. Are you talking about the wolf, the wolf or the guy? <laughs> Could go either way. Both. Maybe. I guess it makes sense that that um, woodwind instruments are the first ones that people made because I feel like that's the most common thing that you hear in nature is like wind yeah. rushing over a hollow yeah. thing and making a sound. So yeah, and a, beyond like that. a hitting hitting two rocks together it's like the simplest yeah. thing to do just make some holes in a bottom. yeah yeah um, and, and there's it. lots of things in nature that kind of lend themselves well to flute making <laughs> i guess yeah. you know bamboo and various yeah. things like that so it's like it's actually like the next step up from a rock so if you're like kind of a basic <laughs> basic basic musician which holds true if you know drummers. Um, so if you're like the most basic form of musician there is, then you just hit stuff. But then, Counting to four and hitting things. Yeah, well, count. I don't know if they can count really, but I. <laughs> but then the next level up is you find something great in the woods when you're on a walk, and then you think, oh, I can just put some holes in it and um, maybe make something make yeah. something happen so yeah well you, you know you've got this bone left over from dinner yeah why not yeah. why not i mean there's no tv there's no youtube what are you gonna do with the time <laughs> do you want to hear what this sounds like the neanderthal yeah. or yes uh, please paleo? okay it's not very pleasant i'll be honest with you. <laughs> That's enough of that. Oh, you know, I kind of like it. It's like a ghost just having a song. <laughs> it is like a ghost. Right. <laughs> it is. This one, this video, so quite a lot of them, they play little tunes on the flutes. And one of them was playing like green sleeves, which was a bit weird. But this one, they're just playing, not really, don't seem to be attempting to play a melody, which I appreciate. Because then you can just get like, this is what the sound of it was. But we're not pretending that this is what the music yeah. was. Yeah. Right. Um, because some of them, which we will get onto, are a bit like, this is what the music sounded like, you know, how did you work that out? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, kind of mostly quite high pitched and squeaky, but probably sounded quite good in a cave. Mm. Yeah, it's not, the, it's not the happiest sound, but then I guess when you're living in a cave, maybe that's just how you feel. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to be honest, like the next oldest ones are also not amazing as far as, so this is, you know, all to do with how taste has changed, I suppose. Um, <laughs> of course, um, of course. But essentially, there's a big jump from like forty thousand years to like five thousand years BC. <laughs> so uh, until then, it was just that guy with his like wacky. It was just his wacky flute. <laughs> just the one guy with his. <laughs> and then, like the next oldest thing is these egg flutes, which are oh. like literally clay eggs, and then they have one hole in the top that you blow into. And mm -hmm. then they have like little fingering holes along the bottom. Okay. That you then use. And they they're Chinese. They're called the Jun. And they sound like this. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, quite a lot, like me learning the recorder in about 1989. Yeah. It's actually a lot more pleasant than most. It's like having a... Um, an alto recorder instead of a soprano one, which I feel like should yeah. be the standard ones that are distributed amongst school children. <laughs> they don't quite pour into the centre of your head in the same way. No. Well, no. They're playing three blind mice over and over again. Um. <laughs> but actually, when you played that for, for us earlier... I thought that that was incredibly creepy, but at now in context with the earlier one, <laughs> it's a significant improvement. That is isn't it? beautiful. I would listen to that all day, all night. <laughs> you would be clawing for that thirty-five thousand years. I'm of willing to. No, I'm willing to revise my opinions on flutes just on the basis of that of that one recording. <laughs> That's how impressionable I am. <laughs> we could persuade you anything, even after that one hit me on the head. <laughs> well, no, um, she she's still she's still on the list, but yeah. I mean, she was a terrible person. So. Um, she knows who she is. Uh, <laughs> um, I wonder what she's doing now. <laughs> um, anyway, the twenty-four years ago, still not over it. The thing is with all of those is that we have absolutely no idea what they were playing on it. Like we know broadly that this is what it must have, this is what it sounded like because we've got them mm. mm-hmm. and you can blow into them and you can make exact replicas, but we have no idea what songs they were singing or if they were singing or, I mean, I assume they were. That's even before banging rocks on rocks. Did um, they, d- do they know, I don't know who they is in this situation, but... Just literally is, anyone before about the Sumerians in 1500 BC. Okay, but people who who know about this particular instrument, do they know like how they, besides the little holes on the side of the egg, mm-hmm. did you, could you manipulate the tone with your with your mouth or were you limited yes. to okay. and there's lots of dips so this is a really popular instrument there's hundreds like hundreds of thousands of them and there are different ones some of them have six holes some of them have two some of them have eight um oh. they're different sizes so some are really big some are really tiny and that some of them are really elaborately painted or decorated and some are just really really plain oh. um and then some of them are like if you stretched an egg, so they're a bit longer and then have two or three rows of poles. So mm. they were obviously playing uh, like a lot of different music with them just by right. cha- like changing the size. Right. Yeah. So you could do a lot with them. Yeah, I think so. More than play just some creepy tones. <laughs> More than just play some creepy tones. But, but you could, you know, it's like a, it's a proto ocarina, basically. You can do a surprising amount with it. Mm. And the earliest ones are made of clay, but then it's a quite important instrument in Chinese history. So some of them are made of like enamel and stone, and some of them are made like woven from silk and then hardened and things. Um, wow. So. You can do all kinds of exciting stuff with them. Mm, very uh, cool. I think I, w- I think I want one. You think yeah. you want one? Yeah. Well, this is going to be our next project. Will I start a Patreon and all of the rewards will just be three of us <laughs> on <laughs> egg flutes um, doing songs? 
<sighs> and my three hour rant, rant about why I hate Lord of the Rings. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we, but we don't really know what they were playing on them. But when we get into like recorded, more recorded history, mm. then we start getting songs, which is fun. Yeah. And we get actual melodies that people have written down. Of which the two oldest are obviously Sumerian, so around about 1400-1500 BC in Mesopotamia, which is the Iraq-Iran area between the Tigris and the Euphrates, aka the cradle of civilization. And they wrote down a lot of songs, which is nice for us, but they're all hymns, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Because a lot of music was religious for a really long period periods of human history yeah like i mean most of ancient culture was incredibly religious like that's all they did was think about the gods because the gods did everything yeah Um, i wonder also if it's one of those situations though where the stuff that was important enough to be written down was religious yeah but i'm sure that there was loads of just bawdy tavern tunes (laughs) happening all the time definitely I no hope one so. gets drunk without a song, you know. You've got to have, you've got to have something. It's to sing. true. <laughs> there was like there were certainly people doing. I can't imagine that there was a time when there weren't people like telling really horrible like willy jokes and making no, up songs about no, each other. No, definitely not. And um, I mean, it's and also music is one of those things that once you have it, once you have the instruments and the ability to make music in some way, it's it seems so intrinsically inhuman to limit that to a particular aspect of life i mean surely when people aren't looking that you're gonna whip that your little whatever the egg flute of the day (laughs) is out and say hey guys listen to this (laughs) let's have a song i think it's even possibly was was something that was more true if possible in the past than it is now because I think it's only within probably the last couple of hundred years when music became so much an art form to be performed for other people that the concept yeah. of mm. only singing if you could, if you were good mm. enough, I yeah. think that's become a lot stronger over the past of a fairly recent history. I yeah. think, I'm, and obviously I'm not going to sign off on this 100%. I haven't studied it. This is this is based on a couple of things I've read briefly and my own supposition. <laughs> but I think that it was probably a lot more just raucous random singing <laughs> if, if like definitely the same amount if not more quite possibly yeah but i think too I, humans i mean today we're alone so rarely but when we are we tend to sing you know in the shower in the car making your omelet in the morning we, we do tend to just sing or i don't know even just you, you could could be yeah. argued that by by playing music on your phone or on YouTube or whatever is is a way of also making music. Yeah, but our ch- our chances of doing that and not being judged are getting so limited. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think that music as a career is certainly more accessible. Yeah, yeah. But okay, do you want to hear a Sumerian hymn? I've got two. Yes, yeah. please. So this one is the oldest melody that was ever written. It is from Canaan and it's called the Hurrian Hymn to Nikkei. Thank you. 
and it goes mental. (laughs) Yeah, so that is the oldest known melody in the world that that survives in its entirety. And it comes from Syria. Amazing. Mm, It is. It's so atmospheric. There's like Enya in there and... Yeah, like Rebbe Shankar. Oh, yeah, yes. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. It is amazing. And it's really, it's interesting that listening to different arrangements of it, because you'll know more about this. Of it, like, basically what we have written down is what is notation. And then they've then worked out what the theory of music is and then worked out what, like, mm. <laughs> using music theory have worked their way around to what that might sound like. Yeah. But for a large part, it is theoretical. And then how they that is played and the decisions that are made in terms of, like, tempo and emphasis and whatever. No. I'm really just glad that you found one that was played on an actual instrument because I found one and I sent it to you, but don't listen to it. Is this the MIDI it was, one? It was a MIDI file. Uh, like, why did anyone <laughs> do that? <laughs> yes i did find a few midi ones i was like i mean i can't imagine anything that could be further away from what this what this tune might have sounded like i can't think of anything that is further away from what music sounds like to be fair yeah well there's Um, there's always 12 tone music (laughs) this is the midi one Doesn't it just make you think of ancient oh, it's Fantastic. <laughs> Do you know uh, what it makes me think of is that person playing the theme from Jurassic Park on the melodica? <laughs> Which, to be fair, is one of my favourite things of all time. But yes. Not quite. I, I don't no. think the impression they were trying to make yeah. I, I mean i don't know maybe it was maybe maybe it was but it's quite good fun so that's the oldest melody and then when you get into like what the oldest song was then mm. it starts to get a bit more difficult but the, i found that it's generally agreed that like the oldest musical culture that still survives and we know what it sounds like is vedic chanting yeah um, so hindu vedic chanting which is like three four thousand years old and is super fun to listen to also <laughs> if you like chanting who doesn't do you want to hear some yes so this is from the samaveda which is sections of vedas set to a melody and then chanted so this is like three thousand years old again you could listen to it all day and they they have this how is it recorded it's just notation or so this is notation so they have this like they have a really very ancient written culture for the veda but also a really ancient oral tradition because it's never been out of the religious and social culture of hindus basically so Mm. it's passed on and on obviously it has undoubtedly changed in the way that it is performed and done but broadly it's it's both written and transmitted already so it's probably one of the most authentic yeah it's incredible it is yeah it is and it kind of in terms because western civilizations have risen and fallen so rapidly mm. and when they fall they tend to get completely destroyed <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and stuff just gets like p- then picked up by the next civilization and used as bricks 
yeah burnt so the history of western music is not particularly well recorded no <laughs> um, and also what no like very few western cultures took that much of an interest in music like ancient western cultures as a art form that was worth recording it was always seen as quite yeah. a, a very specific part of culture that was always there and so nobody ever bothered to write it down it just never Nobody cared to write it down, basically. I think probably having an oral tradition as well as a written tradition really helps with that as well, because a lot of the time, I think Westerners tend to dismiss oral traditions as being inaccurate and assume that most stories told in that sort of tradition are mythologized versions of something very, not very close to the truth at all. But Mm -hmm. like I know definitely, I think Aboriginal Australians and I think a lot of other oral traditions have a system by which they try to ensure accuracy because it's oral it's not forgotten by anyone so younger generations as they are passing it on are critiqued by older generations who can say yes this is accurate as to what I was told and so because you have those layers of what you call it verification as it is Mm. passed on it doesn't change as much as you assume that it does yeah Yeah. well Um, and also because everybody knows it so no one person can change it Right. But also with written sources, and you see this particularly in the time period that I look at, is that when things do start to get written down in really, I mean, really, really meticulous details. So you have notation and then you have like volumes and volumes of words written by the composer saying that these sorts of phrases have to be played in this way. And when you see this note on the page, it means this and you have to play it in this way and really, really detailed. But what we know from comparing those same guys, they're all men, of course, um, (laughs) with when you compare their incredibly detailed notation with their incredibly detailed performance instructions to their actual recordings that they made of them playing their own music. Mm-hmm. What you see more often than not is the things that they bothered to write down were the exceptions or they were the things that were surprising or unusual for the time or they were trying to make a point or they were trying to get back at somebody who talked, you know, shit about them in the newspaper last week. <laughs> so, you know, or they're I trying to it. make beef by composition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or they're trying to tell their students, you know, do what I say, not what I do. Or there's all sorts of stuff <laughs> that comes into play when things get written down. And I completely in my field as well oral traditions and sounds are treated as sort of ephemeral sources and the things that you can trust in inverted commas are things that are written down in notation and words and um, treatises and blah 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 but the actually this the so-called ephemeral evidence shows that that's completely the opposite um, way around Mm -hmm. and my my argument is we should always be using ephemeral evidence to to decide the value um, of written evidence and not the other and not the other way around. That's, that's a good argument. Yeah. Um, it, except for archaeologists, who can't be trusted. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> We've got a few um, of those too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's really interesting. I see. I find your research so fascinating because it just until I met you, like 
three years ago, and everyone's. I just didn't genuinely never even occurred to me that. I mean, obviously, I knew you could interpret written music differently, but the extent to which you could interpret it differently, and the yeah. extent to which you could play the same piece of music differently, to the fact that it makes a grown men cry um, out of rage. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, and we're not talking about. I mean, I think the great myth about classical music performance. So by classical, we're talking about a very um, short period of time compared to what we're talking about in this episode. But um, in that arena, there there is sort of an understanding that performers can sort of do what they want. I mean, they're sort of adhering to traditions and what the composer wants, but they're also sort of making things their own um, and sort of making their own choices of their own free will. And actually, this is a complete load of baloney um, <laughs> that we we tend to just play in ways that we like and justify yeah. those ways with all sorts of moral and ethical um, arguments that suit our purposes. Um, and but, those ways that we like are very culturally bound. Yeah, and, and there's also a view that performer, classical performers have a real say in sort of the breadth of the decisions that they can make. And my work shows that what we consider kind of really risk-taking, out-of-the-box ways of playing familiar classical works is just like a tiny, cautious <laughs> little... It's like putting your toe in a frigid pool. It's so small compared to what people just 80, 100 years ago were doing with the same music. None of that would stand today. But you'd be, you should see some of the YouTube comments underneath some performers today that are considered uh, quite risk-taking and... They're called wow. every name in the book, and yeah, of course they are. Yeah, and and I then know. what they're doing is, this... is actually really not that risk-taking <laughs> in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> is the reason people shout you? I know because you're basically calling them all cowards. Like, well, it's partially that, um, but I think the <laughs> I think the worst thing about my work is that it says that we don't do the things that we say we're doing. Um, uh, whether that means we're being faithful historically or that we're being creative. Um, and I, my, my, my big argument is that classical performers are neither of those things. Um, and that's when you get to, into some problems. <laughs> well, they're neither, so they're neither of those things to the, to the extent that they think they are. And amazing. And there's a lot of a lot of reason to say that and they're just willfully ignoring it um, and perpe <laughs> perpetrating these lies. <laughs> it's a good way to make some enemies is just basically accuse yeah. an entire industry of lying. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Lying to, and to themselves as well. That's the best yeah. way. Because well, I tell you what, artists are not known for their egos. So... <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, and in years, uh, I'll look back and see my work now as completely of its time and completely a vanity project and full of ego. And that's I, I understand that these things are, are contingent, and I don't I don't claim to be immune from the things that I accuse other people of um, being guilty of. See, that's that's why you're good. But we skipped forward like three centuries. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, three millennia, sorry, not three centuries. Let's do it. We've still got the oldest songs written down to get through. So I'm going to do some ancient Greek music and some ancient Roman music. 
because we've basically got there are some weird groups i'm not going to call them weird because i'm sure what they do is very good but there are some <laughs> there are some strange groups who have like dedicated their lives to reconstructing roman music romans never wrote down music ever mm. like we don't have any musical notation from rome so they have reconstructed what roman music sounds like from basically pictures of musicians <laughs> so they're like okay so here we have loads of pictures and when we we have this person with this flute and we have a person with this kind of drum and then we have a person with a lute and it looks like it has three things on it right and then they look at Lozo's and like textual references where they're like and then we had the flautist and the flute player together at once and archaeological finds of like when they've put stuff together and essentially <laughs> try to work backwards from that which is tough as fuck that is bonkers um, Um, but we do before that we do have two sections so there's one which is there's a guy at oxford called um armand dangor who has basically dedicated his the past few years of his career to reconstructing greek music and greeks did occasionally write down their music yeah so classical it's like 500 bc but they did write down so there's a few hymns of apollo basically where they do have some notation as to they've got the hymns and then they've got notation above it so we feel like we know what's going on and they have this weird fucking thing which is where you play two flutes at the same time which is obviously lunacy why would this video on because watching this guy in like a really white room play play these two flutes at the same time in front of a group of oxford dons is hilarious Uh, here we go this is a bit of him that the techniques that... That's... Oh. Um, but he's... It's absolutely hilarious. Um, but they also have put together, working from that and then with the texts that we have of plays, they have yeah. um, put... He has reconstructed Greek choruses. So what he thinks Greek choruses would have sounded like. Um, oh, God. So this is from Euripides, the Orestes. So Orestes kills his father after his father killed his mother. After his mother... I know he kills his mother after his mother killed his father. (laughs) Uh, After she killed... Clytemnestra killed Agamemnon because Agamemnon killed her daughter so that he could go off and fight in the war. But then obviously you can't kill your mother because that's wrong anyway, even if she did kill your father. So then he gets like chased by furies forever. Um, mm-hmm. So this oh is God. a chorus <laughs> explaining. Who hasn't gone through something like that? <laughs> Who hasn't experienced the thing where you murdered your mother and it was right, but also it was wrong. Uh, <laughs> so this is some Greek chorus. Which is, frankly, fucking rubbish. Uh, (laughs) I don't... I mean, I hope that his wasn't a secret because it's really droney. I quite enjoy the double flute situation. Um, Yeah, when that started, I was like, this is the worst thing I've ever heard. But once it settled in a bit, (laughs) it was quite good. It had a bit of a a beat to it. But I don't know. I I mean, Greek, like, I always get a bit twitchy when i hear these reconstructions of greek dramas because they're 
pretty much since the early modern period, it's been such a driving force behind what a lot of later musics have modeled themselves against. And um, in a way that kind of reached its culmination with Wagner and his wackadoodle (laughs) ideas about (laughs) purity and the German peoples and et cetera, et cetera. You can fill in the rest. The rest is history, as they say. But yeah, it's always it's one of those things that has so much baggage. And if we know that when we reconstruct things, it's more about us than the thing we're reconstructing. So we hear more of ourselves and what we think of that time and those people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Then that's the same with any history. Yeah. So I'm always I'm always so fascinated, especially these big, deep, full focal lines. And I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's very it's very creepy. In a way. <laughs> <laughs> it, he was that is a peon. So it is bad news. Yeah. Um, but I do wonder because, you know, there's always a set a significant amount of interpretation going in. Like, he oh, has, yes. Yeah. You can, that, I mean, that video is like a whole thing of him talking which is quite good. Okay, so this is Turkish Roman era music, and this is like the earliest surviving complete composition mm. in the Western world. It's called the Epitaph of Selikos, uh, Cyclos, sorry. And the lyrics, which I quite enjoy, are, while you live, shine, have no grief at all. Life exists only for a short while and time demands his due. Oh. And, and for reasons that are entirely inexplicable, the person who did this didn't just pop it on, just pop those words on, but popped on the musical notation as well. Oh. So <laughs> that presumably someone, anyone who passed by could just knock out a song <laughs> while they were. So, so this is a reconstruction of that one. Oh. There we go. actually quite like that yeah, i that really like nice. it it's really, yeah. kind of sweet down to it 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 is it's a really and it's you know you can play that at my funeral that's fine right. yeah it's really nice yeah i really i just like i don't know it's really pretty and i yeah. like the the whole thought behind it it's lovely yeah, yeah really lovely it's a very great oh you can hear the like you can hear the word chronos at the end they're really clear yeah yeah <laughs> but the romans wrote down fucking nothing oh they hadn't <laughs> useless like, <laughs> the, thing is, the greeks were like really into art so they wrote some stuff down and the romans basically thought that was for pansies yeah mm-hmm. like writing stuff down and thinking about difficult questions was mm. for twats like the greeks who they'd conquered so fuck them uh, <laughs> basically like the romans uh, invented toxic masculinity they absolutely oh, totally. masculinity. Um, but then they just brute forced their way through so much stuff. Like they just, they managed to build the Parthenon without having the concept of a zero, which is impressive. Bonkers. As far as the maths goes. But they did really love music and there's music, like there's pictures of music everywhere and they were really big on music 
in religious festivals. So mm. they were they were really superstitious. So they had all these things about um, like inauspicious sounds. Mm-hmm. Like for example, the animal that you were about to kill going ah. Um, like don't come at me with that was it considered to be a bad omen so they would play like trumpets over the top of the sacrifice so that nobody would be able to hear if there were any inauspicious sounds and if nobody heard it then it didn't count so they basically we have been asking for generations if a tree falls in the forest doesn't make a sound if Roman's already answered it and the answer is no the answer is if nobody hears it, it doesn't count. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so they had special sacred trumpets for that, and they would like bless them a good couple of times a year. And they were really big on dances as well. So they had special priests who did special dances in the streets and things like that. So, uh, but they did it in I don't know a slightly joyless way. But what about it really what about important. the music in you know Rome, the TV series? Yes. What did you do? You remember having thoughts about the music in that? being particularly well, I don't know I'd say there's, so there's two groups that do all the music for all of that stuff so they did it yeah. for Rome and they did it for like all of those war games and stuff like that right yeah and one is called Sinaulia and one of them is called Musica Romana um, and one's German and one's Italian and they're basically the people that they that everybody gets in like they did Gladiator so all the music in Gladiator uh. was done by um, Sinaulia I think and they're the people who have spent years reconstructing, like huge careers reconstructing, mm. like what like type of stringed instrument went with what type of flute based on the paintings in Pompeii. Oh, geez. <laughs> I see. I see. Um, I'm glad that after so, all they work, they get some glory in the form of very a credit. Uh, historically not inaccurate big budget TV shows and movies. I mean, they do. They get all the money. Yeah. yeah. They both have appalling websites from the nine, like, GOCGs. <laughs> oh, I can imagine. Yeah. But, but they're quite good fun. And they have, like, they release albums as well. So if you want to, you can go and buy, like, a Musicar Romana album. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a load of their music on YouTube. So they've put it all up there, which is good. And it, they both have slightly different approaches to how they play Roman music as well, which is quite fun. So you can compare. So some of them like are really almost aggressive, like, and some of them are much more party time. And those are the two the two themes of Roman music, unsurprisingly. <laughs> so at this point in the recording, Ghost got into the machine and made Anna sound like she was a dial-up modem. Uh, I am so sorry. <laughs> so. We have had to re-record this section, which means that it might be a bit compressed, but hopefully we're still going to cover everything that is important. And you, that will be the lost tapes that people will write about for years to come. Yeah, we've, <laughs> we probably made some really good jokes and, and we won't remember they, them, so they're lost forever now. They are lost forever now. Who knows what we talked about? Well, um, the, the real historical value of that lost tape is that it was <laughs> definitive proof that I'm actually a ghost. <laughs> and so as is only right it's been destroyed no it's been destroyed who knows what secrets came out in those lost tapes mm. but we were talking about roman music so that means that for the second night running you and janina get to listen to some roman music excellent and the two moods of roman music which are fighty slash terrifying and we're having a party so this is Sinaulia, 
I was thinking, I think that this is what would probably be playing at the point at which Nero poisoned his stepbrother at a dinner party and then pretended that he had had an epileptic fit when he got taken <laughs> out of the room. And he was like, no, everybody keep eating. He's just had an epileptic fit. And I was like, he doesn't have epilepsy. Oh, God. <laughs> so this is what I think the music that would be playing at that party after the advert for E45. Here we go. All right. I bet they've monetized their weird music. They should deserve it. that that is not soundtracking horror movies yeah. is disappointing to me like it really should be yeah because Maybe. it's obviously horrifying mm. yeah if any of you, any of our listeners are making a horror film license that that music yeah just go and give i assume that you can give them like 47 pence and but you can tell I really that know. i mean it it you can see why it appeals to the big studios it's so it sort of has that built-in cinematic yeah, quality. You can just see Russell Crowe running his hands through the <laughs> tall grass. Yeah, He's getting out his sword and he's going to go and kill Joaquin Phoenix to that music. Yeah, somebody's also, definitely contemplating murder with that music. I mean, you're not sitting mm-hmm. there listening to that music thinking happy thoughts and looking at clouds. You're like, who's next on the old hit list? Yeah. <laughs> Who can I colonize next? It's also got that nice sort of slow, regular like beat to it which can lend itself you know to lots of dramatic cuts mm. and yeah and mm. movements can yeah partly choreograph yeah. your your actors there you can get a good effect <laughs> musica <laughs> romana are the other group and they're like the more party group they're like the i don't know if you're gonna have a roman like festival in a field and everyone was gonna take some drugs like they would be the ones <laughs> that you would invite because <laughs> um, they've got like beat drops and things I have to skip ahead because it actually takes quite a while. It's like a good song, just takes forever to keep going. some sort of like uh traditional dance that they do to that except that whenever they perform it everyone is so drunk that they're basically (laughs) falling over i have just noticed um that in the description for this that that song is is called fistula thurga (laughs) what These are the people that you get in if you're making like a film or a like video game and you want to make it sound authentically Roman, then you get in these people who insist that they are authentically Roman. Yeah. But you can tell to, that to these the people. Knowledge. Yeah. And you can tell that these people are definitely, I mean, I'd be willing to bet any money that they, exactly like Janina says, that they um, are st- also studying the dances that would probably go along <laughs> with this because. This is a thing. I mean, if you are an early musician, so looking at like Baroque, early classical music, 
all of the early musicians that I know all study uh, Baroque dance forms and they dress up in costumes and yeah, of course they, <laughs> they learn oh, yeah, they like particular enunciations that somehow magically find their way into their everyday speech and um, start wearing pocket watches and that sort of thing. So I can almost guarantee you that the people involved with this one are also <laughs> somewhere preview. doing Roman dancing. <laughs> Completely right. Yeah. Um, yeah. The musicians also deal with the theatrical roles and dance. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's beautiful. They are, they're effectively like Roman, like they're like the LARPers that go and do like Roman battles or go and like... A hundred percent do the Battle of Waterloo or whatever, except that they put on a tunic and then kick their legs about and play a lute. Oh, 100%. So. I mean, if if you in, in if you go into a conservatory and you see a young person with like a page boy haircut, you can pretty much, <laughs> you can narrow down their instrument of specialty like to at least two or three choices right off the bat. <laughs> Amazing. That's I know the I best never thing I've ever I mean, it's either going to be sack butt or lute or, I don't know, viola de gamba, and then it's, like, guaranteed. Yeah. Christ. And I feel like of all the instruments that one can specialise in, playing the lute is probably at the bottom of the cool <laughs> pile. Like, in oh, like, Emma, camp, no. they are not the people. No. no I mean... <laughs> is it flautist? It, so goes, they it goes much lower than lute. Lute is, like... <laughs> Loot is prestige. <laughs> I want to know what the lowest, like, what's the lowest of the low? Well, it's personal. Is it percussion? Is it just percussion? No, percussion, I mean, it has some, it has some redeeming qualities, I think. But I, I mean, for me, re- recorder has to be, has oh. to be pretty down there. Because, I mean, I understand that there are fantastic recorder players out there. Um, but the problem is they sound exactly like we did in sixth grade in our recorder choirs, um, except they're professionals. I don't understand. I mean, uh, anyway, sorry. But it literally never gets better. No, that's you. that's their peak. And then you just decide to do it for money, which is great because you could save yourself a lot of time and heartache and stress learning to play an instrument like learning to play a proper instrument, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <An> instrument. <laughs> i enjoy i enjoy this i'm gonna i'm on like an extra thing of just anna bitching about stuff well if you want a good yeah. laugh if anyone wants a good laugh just google image search block flute so b-l-o-k flute and the pictures themselves will tell a story and i'm just everything i'm, I'm to just know. gonna leave it at that <laughs> because it will be like about um the recorder and how awful it is is that somehow the the tin whistle always sounds amazing when it's basically mm. the same instrument but metal. That is incorrect because you <laughs> obviously have not spent anywhere near enough time in Ireland. Where <laughs> if you sit down for more than three seconds, someone will appear with a tin whistle, um, and then before you know it, you're well, being tormented with a tin whistle. I mean, my uh, main experience of it is just watching Lord of the Dance quite a few times when I was 13. I mean, mm. already too much. But <laughs> I have a real... I, as somebody, he, he lives in Ireland with an Irish boyfriend and we go to like Irish pubs a lot. And then anytime you sit down for a minute and a half or before you know it, like there's a fucking tin whistle and an acoustic guitar and someone wants to sing Come Out You Black and Tans at you. <laughs> 
But wait, are pubs in Ireland called Irish pubs? No, they're not. Okay. But there's like there are ones which are like particularly like, Irish. Like particularly, yeah, just that are just like Irish, frenetically Irish. Capital I R I S H. And then there are ones which are just pubs. Uh, right. <laughs> but yeah, and as a result, and also you get marching over here. So both sides play the tin whistle and march down the road and bang a drum and just play a tin whistle and it just sounds interminable. Do they march uh, to the same point and then challenge each other to tin whistle battles? If only. No. Yeah, no. I've uh, got absolutely no patience for the tin whistle now. Okay, so the Romans had... They had multi-instruments, they had many instruments, but it seems like as soon as the Romans stopped being in Europe, everybody just forgot what instruments were for about 800 years and just did fucking chanting. Yeah, so much chanting. (laughs) Interminable amounts of chanting. Um, so much chanting that even talking about this for the second time is feels like too much chanting. It really does. (laughs) <laughs> the thing um, is, is that there's just not much you can say about chanting so saying all of the stuff you can say about it twice it's just like mm. you know they chanted they chanted <laughs> and then there were different ways of chanting yeah the fact that this is that this period so like from about the 11th century through to about the 15th century and it's 99 percent religious chanting and then occasionally some like Hey, nonny, nonny, troubadours. Um, <laughs> but ninety-nine percent. It seems like it's ninety-nine percent, but it's just because that's what was written down, and and yeah, the church yeah. had total control over it, and it was this sort of high art. Um, and th- that's all that's that's all that's left to us is the yeah. chanting. But all the really interesting stuff is the stuff that have. was not written down and that just sort of happen on the streets or at festivals and i do have a troubadour one do you want to hear a troubadour one it's very hey nonny nonny yes definitely Um, it's called these are fucking larpers uh (laughs) it's called le jeu de robin et de marion by adam de la Halle uh, from the 13th century so french troubadours Mm. so street artists basically um this is at the Ravenna Festival of Troubles, which sounds like <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's more fun than anything else. It's a leap to some And then if you don't have anyone, you like lift up your skirt about three inches and then just kick your legs out. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. That's 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 a racy move there, Emma. I don't know. You have, you have know. to be careful when I'm you ba- deploy that one. <laughs> the old ankles. I'm, <laughs> I'm three inches from being bound as a witch. It's all right because it's, this is happening on the lower floors of the Titanic so we can get away with it. Oh yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. So yeah, so that's like the two types of music. I feel like I should balance it out by playing like some Hildegard of Bingen, who wrote like 
a thousand liturgical songs about how much she loved God, which are amazing, I have to say. Like, some of the recordings of them are, like, really impressive. All right, so this is the other side. This is your chanting. Which is all very godly. It's very godly. But there's yeah. there's a group of there's a school of thought that the recordings that are done these days of Hildegard's music are much more polished and serious and rever- reverential sounding um, than oh, okay. maybe they might have been because um, there's so much baggage, of course, attached to her as this sort of feminist icon. Yeah, um, and as a saint, and as a saint, and so there's been there. There are people who think that a certain amount of sort of pretentiousness has been put onto her yeah. music that maybe wasn't necessarily there from the sources that we do have to sort of bring it the seriousness and to make it part of the canon. You know, this sort of very masculine kind of serious music approach. Yeah, um, but that actually she was like a person who had visions and yeah, was a it's quite a mystic. Yeah, as exactly, well. exactly, and a lot of that is very counter-establishment, um, and. I don't. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could you could argue that she tried to make her music very serious to to be accepted by that establishment, and um, but that's always something to think about. That there are certain ways that we sing and play that can yeah. be. Yeah, it's hard now to think qualities. about Catholicism in a fun way. Like, yeah, for uh, for good reason. <laughs> for good reason. But like even it's so reverential that like you have to be very serious in a church and I think the idea for a lot of church people of having like of of singing and it being fun is not something that is attached to Catholicism necessarily. No, 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 no. Not anymore. And now it's like for Baptist churches and things like that, um, <laughs> where they do like where they sing and glorify God with joy rather than with ritual, and then and then just terrify the royal family in the process. Absolutely <laughs> terrify them. They're still they'll be having nightmares about that for twenty years. <laughs> no, they'll repress it. They will squash that down deep as they have squashed oh, down all of their emotions. They've forgotten it already. Years. Yeah, they're not allowed emotions. So I'd like to say that. Um, I found the most amazing picture. It's obviously not contemporary, and I have no idea who it's by, of Hildegard. And she's just got the best look on her face. (laughs) I will put that up on Twitter because it's amazing. So there was some fun. And I assume that all of the Gregorian chanting and the Organum chanting and stuff was, you know, fun in its way. Mm. Well, I think the thing is, when when we look back on people like this who were living so very long ago, and all we have is records of the chants and things it's very easy to assume that it was all solemn and i think that like it's easy to forget that these were just real people who probably like to laugh as much as the next person and it was probably I'm very sure much just did. ordinary life and then occasionally they chanted so after all of the hey nonny nonny troubadours in the streets and chanting in the churches then we get into like proper modern music 
Um, and the original thing I said that, that like the point at which we can say that we're transitioning into modern music is when people started registering their songs and they would register like write them down and write down the notation and then take them to the London stationery office <laughs> and copyright them. That sounds ridiculous, but that the London Stationery Office is like the place where the Houses of Parliament like produce all of their work. Um, oh. So like, if you buy a report from the government, it comes from the London Stationery Office. It sounds like a place to buy pencils. Uh, <laughs> it does a little but bit. In, like, <laughs> but in the 16th century, like that's where you would go with your copy of Greensleeves, which was originally called A New Northern Ditty of the Lady Greensleeves. It doesn't need to be that long. I think they they <laughs> shortening it to just Greensleeves was a was a good call there. It was a new northern ditty, Janina. Uh, <laughs> but what you guys people writing it down and then saying, This is my song and I wrote it and I want people to recognise that I wrote it and then you start kind of transitioning into things where you can say there are periods and there are yeah, yeah, yeah. like composers with a particular style mm. more than you could do in the past. Yeah. And then that's when we get into Anna's kind of proper era where we talk about classical music and Baroque music and romantic music <laughs> and how those things are taught as being very clear definitions between those things, but actually it's very complicated. Mm, it is really complicated. I mean, it's funny because sometimes during these times you do read things written by people where they're sort of really hyper aware that they occupy a certain time and we also call it that time like you know it's not always the case that periods became defined after they happened sometimes where people are really aware that they were living within these sort of stylistic or aesthetic periods and would really talk about it all the time. Well, I, I, guess kind of, <laughs> I am romantic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That kind of We're still romantic. happens now, doesn't it? Like, I feel like the grunge movement, for example, was very yeah. specific to the time and people would have known that. It was very yeah. self-conscious. Yeah, the punk movement. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But it's funny because some of the big names that we still know and love always, a lot of times they... These guys sort of happened at the end of these eras. They sort of mark the ends or the beginnings, like Beethoven, for example, is a famous sort of stop, a railway station between classical and romantic periods. And, and almost everyone after his death sort of agreed, um, regardless of how they felt about him or what was happening afterwards, they all sort of agreed that he was the end of something and or the beginning of something. Um, um, he was personally important in moving music forward. Into yeah, it, I mean, it depended on how you, what your particular agenda was. So say you're, <laughs> so say you're like an 18th century guy, and you like to. It's like the equivalent of the people, the angry men who write in um, letters to the editor today. Um, but <laughs> outraged from Tombridge Wells. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yours in fury from uh, Cambridge, but um, <laughs> but yeah, they so it depended on what their particular agenda was. So if they were quite conservative, um, they would say, "Well, Beethoven was sort of the end of something, um, and there'll never be anyone that can top that. He sort of did the best with sort of instrumental, pure instrumental music that could be done." And his Ninth Symphony sort of proved that because he sort of busted them all and had to <laughs> bring in voices for the finale of his Ninth Symphony, the Ode to Joy. 
<laughs> famous ode to joy chorus. If you, so okay. he'd sort of, yeah, so he had sort of exhausted the possibilities of what you could do with symphonic form or pure absolute music, music for itself, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and so he himself proved that he was the end of that. And now it was time for this whole new thing. Um, or if you were sort of called yourself progressive or liberal, you would say, well, actually, he was opening the door to something. And now all music has to have a meaning outside of itself. And you have to have text and um, yeah, so this is sort of the romantics and uh, music has to refer to something and it has to reflect society and we all have to come together in this communal spirit <laughs> of romanticism. <laughs> okay, if you, so very, like, as if I was a five-year-old who had never heard music before, <laughs> can you explain to me, like, what the difference between, like, Baroque and classical and romantic actually is, like, Oh God! There's no way, Emma. There's no. Way. <laughs> I mean, there are there are um, there are certain stylistic signposts, but I'm even afraid to list those because the boundaries between those forms are so um, porous and they're so fraught. And for every one you bring up, of course, I know you're asking me to explain to you like <laughs> a child, <laughs> but. Like- I'm a very precocious five-year-old. Yeah, the there's very little I can say <laughs> that isn't sort of inherently wrong. <laughs> um, yeah. But I mean, yeah, if you because even within romantic music, there's no one kind of romantic music. Some of it is very backward-looking. Some of it's very forward-looking. Some of it's very much of its time. Um, but even of its time includes all that kind of multiplicity. <laughs> and the same is this it's the same for classical music and Baroque music. And I'm no expert in Baroque music by any means. I mean, I, I appreciate it, but um, <clears throat> my as a as a classical pianist, my experience with Baroque music is Bach. And he's at the very, very yeah. like Beethoven, he's at the very end of his time and sort of setting up what's to come. Um, so Bach is like the end of end Baroque. of the Baroque, and yeah. then Beethoven is like the end of end classical. of the classical, and then Brahms is and sort of the end Brahms. of the romantic. Okay. So that's why you have the three. So Bs. they're like the pinnacle of their like movement. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the three Bs. I always think of them as bookends. <laughs> they're kind of bookends. <laughs> that's a really good way of remembering. It. Yeah, yeah. My strongest but, feeling uh, about any of these is that I hate. Well, not hate. I. I'm tentative about Baroque music because I fucking hate a harpsichord. Oh, well, Janina. <laughs> See, this is why we're friends. <laughs> oh, there's, it's just the most obnoxious sound. And I... I mean... There's not, there's not really any excuse for it. And I don't really... I just don't you- understand. You cut. There's no real defense that can be made for the harpsichord. It's no. like you know all these other keyed instruments. What if we made them worse? Well, yeah. it's kind of one of those things that if you say that you like it, it's like the people who make a point of saying that they like to eat durian. It, it's <laughs> like congratulations. I. <laughs> it smells like rotting flesh, but I just love it. I I can't I can't explain it. I just love it. <laughs> you so you think they're just liars, basically. Yeah. Well, I think there's a bit of posturing involved. 
<laughs> I I don't understand. I mean, I I could be completely wrong. Maybe there is there must be somebody who genuinely loves the sound of a harpsichord. But for me, there's so much other baggage involved usually with um you know, the ethical choices that go into the instruments that we choose to play and I get a lot of flack for not playing historical pianos. Um and for me, at least in my case, the choice is between a modern piano a kind of really old modern piano and a forte piano and forte pianos are lovely sounding but it's just not the instrument that i like to play or like to hear so i don't actually have any problem with the sound of forte piano i just don't particularly like playing them um whereas harpsichords you just think uh harpsichord uh, yeah But for just, me, I awful. think it depends too because I'm I'm a really um, I'm really into I'm a really tactile pianist. I really I need to have a kind of connection with the keys. I need to feel like what I put in, I'm getting out. And mm. there's this really bizarre. I don't know if you've ever played a note, depressed a note on a harpsichord, but that tactile connection is so um, disjointed. Um, because yeah. of course the mechani- mechanism is totally different it's a pluck instead of a strike I, I think um, that's why I, I struggle even just playing keyboard yeah. it's, it's so and I feel like such an elitist when I'm like I like playing real pianos but I um, <laughs> I really I'm happy if an elephant died for me <laughs> I'm not saying I need actual ivory uh, but I, <laughs> but I really struggle with um when I feel like the because the connection is electronic, so mm. you don't feel the weight. Even if you're playing with a weighted keyboard, it's just not the same sensation. I find it very unnerving. Yes, personally, yeah. Yes, I agree. And I imagine a harpsichord is similar. Yeah. Also, and- it's horrible to listen to. Like I always like if you go on Spotify and you like, I I think I'll I think I'll listen to a Bach. And you put on something nice like the Brandenburg, which is, you know, beautiful violins and flutes and it's all fanciful and nice. And then all of a sudden the next song that comes up is <laughs> some droning harpsichord and it makes your ears <laughs> fall off your head. It's the worst. Uh, yeah, it's 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 not for me. Let's just put it that way. Not yeah. everything has to be for everyone. And that's very okay. true. I'm sure there is somebody somewhere who just loves the harpsichord. Um, I know, I personally know and quite enjoy a lot of people who enjoy the harpsichord, and that's something that I have to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> and they are friends with difficult opinions. I know people who are personally offended by the sound of the piano, modern piano. So, I mean, who knows? But I anyway. think there's a lot of sort of ethics and authenticity and all this sort of stuff that goes into instrument choice and who knows remind us exactly what the question was again because we've we've traveled many years (laughs) how many years have we traveled 40 40, we've traveled about forty-three thousand years 43,000 years bone flute and the question 43,000 years ago was uh, how has music changed over history Mm. and the answer is it's changed a lot like from yeah. single instruments building up to i mean we, we talked about singing a bit in our original recording of this janina said that there are theories <laughs> that singing evolved even before talking potentially um, <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah, theoretically think... music is our oldest form of communication yeah. well i would believe that we that. kind of started yeah. to talk with tonal like noises 
rather than spoken yeah rather than developing words well and i think too that it's always the case that tone tonal inflection tells you so much more about somebody than the words that they're necessarily speaking yeah just like gestures always give away (laughs) give away somebody's true feelings (laughs) and and you know some gestures more than others (laughs) uh but yeah, it's. I think it makes sense, and also um, babies always sort of coo before they talk, and parents sort of learn out of necessity, out of sheer terror, to try to figure out what those little sounds yeah. mean, mm. so that they can they can stop crying. They'll always sing at their babies um, before they'll start. You always, when you yeah, talk to a baby, you talk absolutely. in that kind of little sing song way, don't you? Hi, everyone. Yeah. yeah. Well, and also in classical music sort of institutionalized classical music we're always working with people that don't we don't speak necessarily <laughs> the same language yeah as, and and a lot of master classes and lessons happen in just singing and gesture um because if you can hear it then you can imitate yeah it. you don't need yeah. to be able to speak um, to each other to be able to yeah and music's always been a really tricky thing to to describe and talk about and if you can just sort of the classic do you know that song <laughs> so you sing sort of a couple of lines um yeah it's, it's always been the way to sort of get your point across yeah I think. yeah i think in a way really. like what music sounds like and the way that music is performed and what music has been used for to a certain extent has changed a lot and like what has been considered to be aesthetically pleasing has changed but in the end yeah. music as a being a kind of fundamental part of human culture, that there aren't any human cultures that don't have music and singing and and instruments yeah. is that it has it hasn't changed at all since the beginning of like as soon as humans stood up on their hind legs and started shouting at each other across a field, <laughs> they were <laughs> probably singing at each other. Yeah. And we know from like yodeling and that Swedish what's it called? Kooning. Are you Kooning, yeah. Um, you sing to cattle. Yeah, they, they, you can communicate across vast distances with singing in a way that you can't with shouting. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a good answer well, to the question. Yeah, I think so. I'm happy, I'm happy with, with that. that. Yeah. And if you're happy with that, and Janine is happy with that, as the two music people in this conversation. <laughs> and Oliver is, like, I feel very much like the poor cousin here because I've got, like, three very trained music people, like, and, and me. <laughs> Like, somebody once hit me on the head with a flute and I quit doing trumpet when I was 11 because I had an argument with my teacher. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, for me, I think when as soon as you start to learn music, especially in university, you become, you start to know really a lot about a very, very tiny <laughs> history. And, and, and for you, you have to know about many, much, much, much more. So True. I would say I'm I'm not really an expert. <laughs> you would yeah, say that no. though. I'm not, I'm going to disbelieve you. <laughs> so thank you so much, Anna, for coming and talking to us about music. Thank oh, you thank very you. much and for doing having it me. Twice it was lovely. As well. <laughs> no, and no. if you want to follow Anna, she's at Anna Scott Piano on Twitter to differentiate her from fictional Anna Scotts. And we're going to put fictional and lesser. Obviously Anna and lesser. There are no better Anna. Oh, Scott. obviously. We're going to put. <laughs> I would never talk. <laughs> I would never talk to Hugh Grant. Got <laughs> and if we're going to put a link to some of her work so that you can see what she does and how she pisses people off. 
<laughs> with her recordings yes. by recreating original pieces of Brahms in the show notes because it's really amazing and it will blow your mind. And you can follow Sexy History Pod at, at Sexy History Pod or email us questions at uh, sexyhistorypod at gmail.com and you can follow me at, at Nuclear Teeth. And you can follow me at J9 and If. And you can follow Oliver, who has, after getting trapped in Munich, made it back to the UK and is a marriage man now. So we say congratulations to Oliver and Barbara. Yeah, congratulations, Yay. guys. Because love is a beautiful thing. It is. And they had lots of good Austrian music at their wedding and did some Austrian dances. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. And the next question comes from Mr. Moth and is who was the most powerful person in history so i think we're going to do some knockout rounds on twitter for that we're gonna have to you gotta narrow it down somehow so we'll see you in two weeks bye everyone bye Bye. goodbye